Over the last year, we asked you to commit to going above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings in order to build 50 plus new church buildings, sports facilities, and meeting spaces for our M1 Capital Campaign. Through M1, we have been given a unique opportunity to share God's light across the globe. It's been an entire year since we began, and we're still going strong. The community of Tres Rios in Costa Rica now has a completed indoor auditorium to hold services in. After months of meeting outdoors, lots of renovation and hard work, they are able to have full functioning church services. In Cambodia, we are happy to report that the three church facility projects are 100% complete. These buildings have given the community a safe place to meet, regardless of rain or shine. And the completed projects in Madagascar have been able to see some of its first fruits with gatherings and events. Thanks to your financial contributions, Sagebrush Church was able to aid in the building of a classroom and indoor sports complex. Check out this video we received. Dear brothers and sisters from St. Bruce Church, we want to say thank you for helping us to build these facilities and the school Bepitia for those children to be reached by the gospel and to know Jesus Christ here in the South Madagascar. And these are just a few of the many projects we've been able to be a part of. Thank you for your continued prayers and support for the M1 Capital Campaign. I, I just don't think you can fully comprehend the difference that you're making and the thousands of lives that you're touching with your generosity. So thank you so much for giving. Uh, we want you to know the M1 campaign has come to a close. You guys gave well above and beyond. And uh, this next year, we're going to continue to build more churches overseas just with our general budget. So when you put that uh, tithe money into the collection box or you give online, uh, you're supporting all these new works. I think we're going to do nine more churches this year as well. So I want to say thank you so much for all of that. We are, yeah, that's great. Let's give it to the Lord for that. He's, he's doing it. We're in the middle of a series called Dead End Desperation. I read a story this past week. A guy named Ben Taylor tells of a time when he was in Honduras. He was going from one church to another. He was being escorted by a guy named Tito Rodriguez. Uh, Tito is the national director of one of the large Latin America congregations that is there. And as they were driving, as Tito was driving them along the way, he all of a sudden stopped. And he asked Ben to get out of the vehicle, so he did. And they walked over to where there was this ravine. And there was like 30 feet to get from one side to the other with just a drop all the way down. And Tito said, a, a few months ago, there was a hurricane that came through. And it wiped out the bridge that was here. He said, I found out about it when I entered into one of the villages. I came a few days after the hurricane, and the villagers were surprised to see me. And I said, why are you surprised to see me? And they said, well, the bridge was blown away. It was destroyed during the hurricane. And Tito said, no, it wasn't. I just drove across the bridge. I could tell you guys had already repaired it. I was a little surprised. It was made of brand new wood. He said, the villager said, no, 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 there is no bridge. And Tito said, yes, there is. I just drove across the bridge not more than a few minutes ago. They said, Tito, there is 
no bridge. And then they grabbed him and they walked all the way back to where the ravine was and there was no bridge. So the question is, how did Tito get from one side to the other? How did he cross a bridge that didn't exist? Now, friends, this isn't too hard for us to believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, because we believe in the miraculous, don't we? I mean, my goodness, we're the people who believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh day. We're the people who believe that God formed Noah, excuse me, Adam out of the dust of the ground. I'll get to him eventually, right? We're the people who believe that Noah was saved from a great flood, a worldwide flood. We're the people who believe that Moses, through the help of God, parted the Red Sea with the staff that God had given him. We, we believe that David took on the giant Goliath and defeated him. We believe that when Daniel was lowered down to the lion's den, that God sent his angels and shut the mouths of lions. We believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they entered into the fiery furnace, did not burn not one little bit. And even when they came out, they didn't smell like smoke. Friends, we believe in the miraculous. Think about some of the things that we believe. Let me give you the most miraculous thing of all. We believe that God, the creator of the ends of the universe, and now we can see farther into the universe and into space than ever before, the God who made all of that became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he became the ultimate sacrifice for our sins by dying on the cross. And we believe that three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering death, sin, and the grave. And we believe that one day, Jesus will crack open the sky and come to take us to be with him forever. Friends, we believe in the miraculous, don't we? So it shouldn't surprise us that we read about one miracle after another that God's doing through this prophet Elisha. If you haven't been with us, a couple of weeks ago we found out that Elisha wants a double portion of Elijah's faith, of Elijah's spirit. He's saying, I want to be twice as close to God as you are, Elijah. I want to be used by God twice as much as you were used by God. And God blessed Elisha. In fact, out of all the people in the Bible, Elisha did more miracles than anybody else except for Jesus. Now, if you've been following along in 2 Kings, you've already read some of the miracles that Elisha was able to do through the power of God that was in him. He was able to throw his cloak on the ground. The Jordan River parted from one side to the other. And one day he walked upon a poisonous body of water and he talked to the water and the water was healed. The water was clean again. And there was that time when uh, he was being picked on by a bunch of teenagers. And the miracle was he called some bears out from the woods and the bears mauled the kids. Well, you never read that story before? It's right there in the Bible. That's one of those stories that's kind of a head scratcher. Like, why is that in there? Why is that miracle in there? Here's how the story goes. Elisha was heading up to the mountain. He was going to go worship his God. And a bunch of these teenagers, at least 42 of them, because 42 of them were mauled on this particular day, 42 teenagers, snot-nosed kids that they were, started to make fun of Elisha. They said, go on up, you bald head. Now, what you got to understand, in the Old Testament is you had baldness. They considered you to be weak. So here's what they're basically saying. Hey, Elisha, you say you're a man of God. You say that you're a prophet. We think you're weak. Why don't you go on up, you weak prophet, and worship your weak God? 
So Elisha said, let me show you how weak he is. And he called the bears out, and the bears mauled 42 of them. Now, when I was a student pastor, I taught that passage over and over and over again. I'll tell you that right now. Now, I'm going to show you a picture. Now, remember, the whole moral of that story is don't mess with the man of God. So I'm going to show you a picture. Let's see what your reaction is. Here's the picture. <laughs> Be careful. The bears are in the foyer. That's all I have to say about that. Well, Elisha does one miracle after another. Now we're up to 2 Kings chapter 4. Let's look at the next miracle that takes place. This is what the Bible says. There was a, a woman, and she was very, very much in deep trouble. This story is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. She finds herself in a desperate situation. Friends, she's not in what we call a first world problem. Now, you've heard of first world problems, haven't you? First world problem is when the pastor makes you feel guilty and makes you stay for the entire service because the most important part of the service is the end part where people are making decisions for Jesus Christ. So you feel guilty, which means you've got to go out there and stand in line with your car for five minutes. That's what we call a first world problem. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Shake your head this way if you understand what I'm talking about right now, all right? Let me give you another first world problem. You're at home and you're streaming Netflix, but your Wi-Fi isn't working right, and all you get is that little spinny wheel going round and round and round. That's a first world problem. You get onto Amazon, you're going to buy something, but they don't have your size. That's a first world problem. You go out to eat at a restaurant, they put too much goat cheese on your salad. That's a first world problem. They've overcooked your steak. Oh, what are you going to do? It's a first world problem problem. You walk into your closet. Did you hear what I just said? You walk in to your closet and then you pronounce that you have nothing to wear. That is a first world problem. You open up the door to your pantry. You step into the pantry that's filled with food. And men, you look at your wife and say, there's nothing to eat. That is a first world problem. Your iPhone isn't the latest and greatest. That's a first world problem too. This woman's not experiencing a first world problem. She's in a life and death situation. Let's look at it. It says, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my boys as his slaves. So we have a woman, and her husband has died. I, I'm guessing tragically. I'm guessing suddenly. And he has a great debt. And now she has incurred the debt. And so the debt collectors come for payment, and she has no way to pay the debt. And in the Old Testament times, when you had no way to pay the debt, they would sell your children into slavery. So this woman is in a desperate situation. Now, some of you came in here today, some of you are watching from home. You find yourself in a desperate situation as well. Nobody anticipates getting cancer before the age of 50. That's a desperate situation. Nobody anticipates that they're going to be the one finding themselves in a dead-end job. Nobody anticipates that the best word that you can describe your marriage with is the word mediocre. Those are what we call desperate situations. She doesn't know what to do. She's probably called out to God, and God hasn't done anything, at least from her perspective. 
and she's so desperate that she goes to this man of God and she asks if he might do something for her. And I love Elisha's response because she, when she tells about her problem and her situation, he doesn't say, ooh, well, good luck with all that. I hope it works out for you. No, this is what he says. He says, how can I help you? So I was reading this passage of scripture. I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a church, a group of people, and that's what we always said when somebody was hurting. And how can I hurt you? How can I help you? There are so many people who come in hurting every single weekend. So many people watching from home that are hurting every single weekend. What if we were there for each other? See, I think the church, when it's working right, is a place where people look out for each other. Where no one faces anything that they go through alone. That they always have someone who supports them. Someone who prays for them. Someone who encourages them. Someone who enters into their world and says, let's carry that burden together. Because none of us were meant to carry the burden alone. I remember years ago, I had first moved to Albuquerque, and there was a bit of culture shock moving here, and I wasn't yet married to my wife, Christy, and I was living in this little apartment, two-bedroom apartment, all by myself. Well, that's not 100% true. I had a cat. I don't like to admit that I had a cat, but Christy told me she wouldn't marry me unless I got a cat, so I got a cat. I named the cat Casey. He was Casey the cat. He was a good cat. I love that cat. Hate all the other cats, but I love Casey the cat. He was a wonderful, wonderful cat. Whenever he got in a fix, he reached into his bag of tricks. That's Casey the cat. Love that cat. Well, three o'clock in the morning, my phone rang. Now, I don't know anybody. I've only lived here about two, three months. I only know a few people from the church. And my phone rings at three o'clock in the morning. And of course, you know when your phone rings at three o'clock in the morning, it's not good, is it, friends? So I answered the phone. It was my mom on the other end. This is not good. And I hear my brother Jeff in the background absolutely panicking, screaming. And I said, what in the world is going on? And my mom was pretty calm in the situation. She said, your dad was just taken by paramedics and by the ambulance. He's gone to the hospital. He fell down. He had a stroke. Can't feel the left side of his body. He can't speak. I'll call you in a couple hours, give you an update. And that was it. She hung up the phone. So here I am with the Casey the cat and myself in that dark apartment in the middle of the morning. Don't have anybody I can call, anybody I can turn to. And I felt so alone. I felt so desperate. And I couldn't go back to sleep. So I laid there in my bed with the phone on my chest, waiting for the phone call. An hour went by, then two, then three. Now we're getting right around 7 o'clock in the morning. So I thought, well, I... Might as well go to work. I don't have anything else to do. It sure beats sitting around here waiting on the news. So I got dressed and headed to the job. I got there pretty much before anybody else. And my boss came in, my friend, Mike Bodine, walked by. He said, what are you doing here so early? So I told him what happened and happened with my dad. He said, I'll pray for you. I said, I appreciate it. And I thought that was the end of it. Well, around 8, 30, 9 o'clock when the staff started showing up, he walked down he asked me to come out of the office, come down to his office. And I didn't know what for. So I walked down the hallway, and I walked into his office, and there was a chair in the middle of the office. He said, I want you to sit in the chair. And then 25 to 30 staff members came out and gathered around me, 
and started praying for me and for my dad. And they prayed things that I couldn't pray myself. And they asked God for things that I just didn't feel like I could ask myself. And they lifted me up and they lifted my dad up. And I felt such peace and such comfort in the midst of all that. Friends, that's when the church is working right. When we look out for each other, when we help each other, when we hold each other, when we encourage each other. I love Elisha's response. He says, how can I help you? How can I come alongside you? How can I carry this burden with you? And then he asked her a question. He says, tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. Now, what Elisha is asking this woman to do doesn't make any sense at all. He says, listen, I want you to take the little bit that you've got, the little bit of oil, that little jar that you've got, and I want you to go to your neighbors, and I want you to gather up as many jars as you possibly can. Now, this doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would somebody do something like this? I mean, I think I would look at the prophet and go, what are you talking about? Why do I need to get more jars? I don't have anything to put in the jar that I've got. Why do you want me to run around and get more jars? That doesn't make any sense to me. He says, no, now you go and don't get a few. Get as many as you can. So here's my question. How many jars would you go get? Would you go to your neighbors? Because I don't think the neighbors live that close, to be honest with you. And those jars that they had weren't small little jars. Would you go and gather any jars? See, some of you, you would. You say, you know what? I'm going to get me some jars. And so you get a couple of jars, right? But you got to go to the next neighbor, and the next neighbor's a little bit farther away. But she said, you know what? The prophet told me to get as many jars as I can. Don't make any sense to me. So I'm going to get a couple more jars. So we got any four-jar people here? Here's my question. At what point do you stop? Do, do you stop maybe at six jars? Maybe I got some eight-jar people. You'd take eight jars. Maybe you'd do ten. Do we got anybody who would do ten? That seems like a lot of jars right there, don't you think? I think after 10 jars, I said, that's a lot of jars. I don't know if I'm going to get more jars. But no, no, some of you out faith, you're going to get two more. No, you're going to get two more after that. Now we're up to 14 jars. That's a lot of jars. How many jars did she get? I don't know. But I know this. She trusted him in his word. Now, my question to you is, do you trust God at his? Because when he asks you to do something that doesn't make any sense, do you go after all the jars you can get? Do you go the extra mile? Are you faithful? Do you remember last week we talked about this? If you want to see the faithfulness of God, you've got to take the first step. You've got to go collect a jar. Last week, you had to dig a ditch, right? Go get a jar. How many jars would you stop at? And, and be honest with yourself. Because we like to over-spiritualize things, don't we? We like to say, I don't know about you, Todd, but I get 16, 18, 20, 24 jars. I don't know. I just keep getting jars to everybody right out in the entire town. That's what I would do. i just fill my house with jars. That's what I'd do. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> but see how we lie to ourselves? We deceive ourselves? Come on. This doesn't make any sense. Would you fill up your whole front room with jars? You got nothing to put in the jars. Come on. Be honest. At what point would you not get any more jars? For some of us, you wouldn't even leave the house. 
you wouldn't even go get one more jar. You'd just say, you know what? If you're going to do something, do it with the jar that I've already got. How many times God asked you to do something, didn't make any sense, and you didn't do it? See, what I believe to be true is we got one jar of people here today. And we got one jar of people watching from home. What's a one jar person look like? Well, that's somebody who's asked Jesus in their life but never has been baptized. Don't tell me you're going to go all around the neighborhood and collect as many jars as you can when you can't even get baptized. Don't tell me you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you won't follow him into the tank. So there's things that don't make any sense, right? God says, listen, first act of obedience. If you truly are my follower, you will get baptized. We say, I ain't doing that. Make me so. Don't make any sense. I'm not, I'm not going to go do that. One jar. I'll give you another one. How do, how do I know one jar Christians? It's super simple. They're the people that don't tithe. Rubber meets the road when it comes to tithing, doesn't it? Really shows the litmus test on whether you are faithful to uh, Almighty God or the Almighty Dollar. And it's the only time in Scripture where God says, "Test me in this and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing." We're like, "I don't care how much blessing I got to keep all the money I got for myself." And here's the bummer for you, one jar of folks: you're missing out on the blessing. You're missing out on the miracle. You're missing out on the faithfulness of God. You're missing out on what God can do. <laughs> one jar of people. They don't leverage their life for the kingdom of God. They come to church occasionally. They nod their head in agreement. They have great plans about what they're going to do when they get home and how their life is going to change. But they don't change. And then when the pastor says, listen, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we never should be satisfied with just going to church. We need to be the church. One jar of people say, yes. And then they never do anything. They never get involved in a ministry. One jar of people never share their faith. One jar of people hold on to bitterness. They, they know what the Bible says, that we're supposed to forgive in the same way that we've been forgiven. But we say, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. That doesn't make any sense. Vengeance is mine. No, vengeance is his. Vengeance is his, saith the Lord God Almighty. He says, your job is to forgive in the same way that you've been forgiven. But we blow it all off. And every time we do this, every time we refuse to take a step of faith, every time we refuse to do the things that don't make any sense to us, we're the ones getting robbed. We're the ones not seeing the faithfulness of God because we haven't taken the first step, shown our faith. And when we show our faith, then God shows his faithfulness. Now, here's what I know to be true even about one jar of people. You ready for this? They do have faith. They do believe that God can do great things. It's just that they have their doubts. And it's their doubts and it's their excuses that stop them from going door to door to gather up the jars that are necessary to see the miracle. I love this story in the New Testament. There's this man, and he has a son, and the son is very sick, very ill. And, G and he goes up to Jesus. The dad goes up to Jesus, and he says, I want you to make my son well. If you can, will you make my son well? And Jesus is offended. He says, if... I can. And then Jesus says this. He says, everything is possible 
for him who believes. Now that word believe comes from the Greek root word pistos, pisteo. It means faithing. Someone who really puts their full weight. It's not just a cognitive belief. It's putting everything you are everything you hope to be in Jesus' hands. He says, everything is possible for him who lays all of his weight upon me. And then the dad says this. He says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. You find yourself in a desperate situation. God's asking you to do things that don't make any sense. God's asking you to trust him in ways that you've never trusted him before. Will you move forward in faith? Will you still hold on to his hand? Will you still trust him even though it doesn't make any sense? Will you be honest with him about your belief and about your unbelief? Because the Bible says if you've got faith of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to move and it will. Nothing will be impossible for you. I think for some of us, we need to go home and we need to pray a simple prayer. You ready for it? Lord, I do believe, but I have my unbelief too. And I'm afraid and I'm scared that if I take this step of faith, if I do what you called me to do, if I become the person that you want me to be, I'm not certain that you're going to show up. So give me the strength to be courageous. Give me your perspective. Show me your faithfulness. Take me by the hand and lead me to the next step of the person that you want me to be. Oh, God. Help me to sacrifice what I never could sacrifice. Help me to give what I never could give. Help me to go where I never thought I could go. Help me to be somebody who'll go door to door and get every jar that you want me to get. Write this down if you're taking notes. Little is much in the hands of God. Let me say that again. Little is much in the hands of God. You give him a little bit of faith and he will do exceedingly abundantly more than anything you've ever dreamed or imagined. And every time you take a step of faith and you find that he's faithful, the next step will become easier. And then you'll look back upon your life at all the times that God was faithful to you because you gave him the little bit that you had and God did something amazing. Have we forgotten how God does great things with little things? I mean, Moses just had a staff, but God used it to part the Red Sea. David had nothing more than a child's toy, a, a slingshot. He defeated a great giant. And what did Jesus have? Well, he had nails and a hammer placed into his hands. And it provided salvation for all mankind. Let me ask you something. Is your circumstance in your hand or is his hands? Is your problem in his hands or in your hands? Is your anxiety in his hands or in your hands? Who are you counting on? Who are you trusting for your eternity? And who do you need to be trusting for your today? Give the little bit you got, it'll be more than enough. Well, this is what the woman does. She gives a little bit that she's got. She goes from house to house to house to house to house to house to house. She says, I need your jars. Well, what do you need our jars for? I have no idea. But the prophet told me I need to get these jars, so I'm gonna get the jars. And so she collects the jars. And I don't know how many jars she got. I think she got a lot of jars. I think she got a plethora of jars, to be honest with you. And then she did exactly what the prophet told her to do. She shut the door. She gathered her sons. She took the jar with a little bit of oil and poured it. And it filled it up. And she did it again. And she did it again. She did it again and again and again and again and again and again. And when she got to the last jar, the oil stopped. And then she took all the money from selling the oil from the jars, paid off all of her debt, 
and got her life back again. We love stories like this. You show your faith, God shows his faithfulness, all of a sudden the miracle comes. We love stories like this. You go to the doctor, doctor says, listen, I don't understand it. We had x-rays, we had CT scans, we had MRIs, we knew that there was a tumor. But we don't understand it, where the tumor once was, the tumor's gone. It has vanished, it has disappeared, and we don't have any explanation for it. And you look at the doctor and say, well, I've got one for you. God did that. God took that tumor away. You start tithing. You start getting on a budget. You start doing the things God wants you to do. All of a sudden, miracle money starts coming in. You start paying off debt like you've never paid it before. You're a better steward of the money that's been entrusted to your care than ever before. And you're like, wow, I can't even believe this stuff actually works. This is amazing to me. I don't know how God does it. No, I don't either. But I know this. You show him your faith, he'll show you his faithfulness. And we love that, don't we? When we pray and ask God to intervene and then he does some miracle and we're like, oh, that is amazing. That is awesome. I cannot believe. Wow, look at what God did. Oh, we love it. We love it when the jar of oil keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and God shows his miraculous power. We love that. And sometimes God does that. We all have stories. Sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes God says, I'm not changing the circumstance. You're going to walk through this one. But you're not going to walk through it alone. And I'm going to overwhelm you with my presence, with my power, and with my peace. And I think that's the greatest miracle of all. And why would God do that? Because there are some lessons that can only be learned in the midst of the storm. And there's some miracles that are far more precious when you find him sustaining you every moment of every day as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you realize you will fear no evil because he is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. God has this amazing ability to take the evil that Satan intended, that the world dishes out at us, that we even do to ourselves, and he can turn it around for something good. I was reading this book called See at the House by Bob Benson. And he recalls a conversation that he had with a friend of his who uh, just had a heart attack, was recovering from a heart attack. Bob said he went up to his friend and he said, how'd you like your heart attack? And the guy said, I didn't like my heart attack at all. It about killed me. Bob said, would you recommend it to somebody else? He said, no, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And then Bob asked him a series of questions. He said, let me ask you something. Do you appreciate your life more now after the heart attack than you did before? He said, yes, I do. He said, you and your wife always had a great marriage, but are you closer now than you've ever been before? He said, yes, we are. He said, you've always had a close relationship with the Lord as well, but would you say you're closer to God after the heart attack than you were before the heart attack? He said, I've never been closer to God in my life. Bob looked at him and said, how'd you like that heart attack? See, that's what God does. He brings good out of bad. I love how James puts it in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Of course, the people that James is writing to are facing some pretty serious trials. Uh, if you're a Christian in the first century, boy, you're public enemy number one. 
and it's okay to have you killed. And so they're running. They're fleeing from their homes. They're fleeing their possessions. They've lost everything. This is what we would call a trial, wouldn't you? James has the audacity to write, you consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith. What does it do? It produces perseverance. That perseverance finishes its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God has been on this idea that we become like Jesus. And he'll do anything in his power, anything, to mold us and shape us to become more like him. And there are some lessons that can only be learned in the midst of the storm. Oh, we'd rather him remove us from the storm. I get it. We would rather have the oil keep filling up the jars. But God says, no. This one we're going to walk in together. This one I'm going to sustain you. This one I'm going to give you strength. This one I'm going to give you peace. This one is going to make you so aware of my presence that you will never, ever forget it again. And your life as a result will never be the same. So what should we do? Well, we should give him our weakness because then he can make us strong. We should give him our pain so that he could be our comforter. We should give him our confusion. Then he can be our guide. September 2001. Frank Salucci laced up his boots, put on his hard hat, and headed down to the World Trade Center. He would usually work construction. He was used to building things up. He wasn't used to working with this kind of debris. But he volunteered on his days off to go down there and work through the debris. His hopes was that he would find someone who was still alive. He didn't. He found 47 dead bodies. He also found hope. He said, for many days as we worked through the wreckage, we wondered, where's God in the middle of all this? And a lot of us wondered that when the World Trade Center was attacked. Where was God in the midst of all that? He said, one day I got my answer. I walked through this corridor, this makeshift corridor where two of the buildings had collapsed into each other. And underneath this kind of dome... There was a cross. He said engineers looked at that cross. In fact, they've got that cross now as a monument to 9-11. Three days later, the engineers studied it, and they found that the girders were coming from two different buildings. When the buildings collapsed, the girders fused together, fused together by fire. Frank said, for many days we wondered, where was God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our heartache? And what we found was he was there in the midst of it all. When the ambulance takes your child, when the disease takes the life of your friend, when the economy takes your retirement, and when the two-timer takes your heart, will you have the faith to look for Jesus in the midst of the crisis. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will sustain you. He will strengthen you. And he will help you. And when you get to the other side of it, you'll look back upon the faithfulness of God. And you'll be stronger for it. And your love for him will be greater. And even though you would never want to go through that ever again, you'll be grateful because of how close he was to you. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, a lot of us came in today and we've absolutely been sucker punched. Life has not turned out the way that we hoped that it would, and a lot of things just don't make any sense. And you've revealed some things to us that we need to do. Give us the faith to take that step. To show you, Lord, that we still believe and that we're still holding on. Give us the strength to consider the trials that we face as pure joy because we know you're doing your work inside of us and you're developing us and you want perseverance. Oh God, may it be said of us that there's no quit in us, that no matter what might come our way, we'll keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we thank you for every miracle that you've done, for every prayer that you've ever answered. And we thank you for the miracle that in the midst of hell on this earth, that you have been our rock, that you've been our refuge, and you've been our strength. Give us faith to be strong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.